Our guest today, Kendall Pearson, leads onboarding and implementation at Workstream, a startup that helps businesses manage hourly workers. But his path to customer success is pretty unusual. He'll share with us the why behind the career choices he's made and the lessons he's learned along the way. We talk about how his unique background has shaped him into an even stronger customer success leader and how he helps others discover work that they love. I created this podcast to shed some light on what it's really like to work in customer success. As a recruiter who builds customer success teams at high growth tech startups, I've spoken with some of the most impressive CS leaders in Silicon Valley, and I realized that their stories need to be heard. This season, I'll be speaking with some of the people who have most inspired me in hopes that their stories might light your path toward a more fulfilling career. I'm your host, Sarah Roberts, and you're listening to Success Unscripted. Hi. Sarah. How are you? I'm good. Can you hear me? Yeah. Can you hear me? Yep. Yep. Happy Friday. Yeah, you too. You too. Yeah. You ready to do this? I'm really nervous. <laughs> Even though I don't have to do anything with this, I could delete it if I like really freak out. But um, but I and I wanted to kind of preface this with like, I have no idea where this is going to go. You're my first person that I'm doing this with. But you know, the ultimate goal is that people who listen to it, something will resonate with them or they will learn something that will help them navigate their careers towards something that's more meaningful, right? right. So like as a recruiter, you know, I've spoken with thousands of candidates and and have really come to believe two main things. And that is first that you can't separate your happiness and your mental health from your work. Mm -hmm. Um, And that also my experience of white knuckling it through so many different jobs isn't uncommon. Yeah. (laughs) And, and it doesn't have to be that way. And so I'm fascinated by this idea of like what makes people thrive. And I think it's, discovering some balance between what you love to do um, and it's challenging, but you're good at it and you're also passionate about it and you're engaged and that's different for everybody. But if you can wake up in the morning and you're excited about the day ahead, that transforms every aspect of your life. And so very excited to talk to you as my very first guest um, for a couple of reasons, because you inspire me every time I talk to you. Oh, I'm glad. I find you to be very self-reflective and you have a strong philosophy on, you know, what it means to be a leader in an organization. And uh, your story is also very unique because you've taken a untraditional path from engineering to sales to customer success and making those pivots successfully takes a lot of courage and a lot of skill. Yeah. Um, so I, I feel the same way, Sarah. Yeah. I, and I, I think that these, I think that these topics that you're discussing are super important. Um, and I felt a lot, <clears throat> it's going to be, in some ways, it's going to be difficult for me to talk about it because in this day and age, when it feels like so many people are not happy with their jobs, and I don't want to say that they wear it as a badge of honor, because I don't think that that's true, but it's almost like par for the course. Like, yeah, we all, it's just, it's just the grind and it's just, you know, like late stage capitalism or whatever people are calling it, that I'm over here loving my job and I always have. And I, I don't always feel comfortable. In fact, most of the time I don't. I don't I don't talk about how much I've loved my jobs or my careers. Like yeah. it's not something that you hear a lot. And I feel very grateful for that problem, I guess. But yeah, yeah. this for, for me, this will be the first time discussing uh, these issues with, with anybody outside of like maybe my wife. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a, it's a funny concept you bring up because when I first, like I went through a really tough, dark time in 2017, where 
my fiance at the time and I got into a ton of debt and I had never been in debt before, but because I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do and I ended up becoming an entrepreneur and then I did. And all of a sudden I was making more money than I ever had, but I was working like maybe 20 hour weeks and we were in Sausalito and I was like hanging out on the Bay and I was like, who do I talk to? I can't relate to anybody. So I get that part too. Um, and now, you know, and things go up and down. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that's, I, I, it doesn't have to be a sob story, right? Like part of it is I think that you have done such a good job of, and there's that self-reflection piece of making those pivots. Like, and, and that's what I want to talk about is like how, how your story has evolved and how you've been able to build this life for yourself. That's very fulfilling, even though it's taken so many different terms. So, um, so I want to start just by kind of like getting a little bit grounded in what you do right now. So your your title is head of onboarding and implementation at Workstream. So what does that mean? Yeah, that means that all customers, uh, you know, we're a SaaS company, right? So we sell software to businesses and all of our customers that sign up with Workstream go through my team to make sure that they get onboarded properly onto the software. And, and the way we define that is, for and, and every company has a slightly different definition, but our definition is they're trained fully on the platform. They're set up completely in the correct way. And not, and this is the, mo the most rare, not everybody does this third one, but we also make sure that the, the end users are actually adopting and using the platform instead of having it just merely set up and ready for them and even just trained and then hoping that they use. We also have an emphasis on that third point with um with the end user adoption and so um yeah that's that's in in a few sentences that's what my team does now um i end up being pulled in a lot of other directions um just because um there's a lot to do in a startup and you know just like any start startup there's a lot of hats to wear and some of those other side projects are are some of my um uh, most some of the most exciting things that i do at work but you know at the end of the day that's my core job yeah Cool. Um, so when I think of onboarding and implementation, I don't typically think of adoption and later cycle customer success stuff. Um, is there a separate team that does that? Yeah, the, we, we have a group of CSMs. In most companies, the CSMs, not most, but a lot of companies, the CSMs do the onboarding. And that ends up taking up all of their time. So they spend a huge chunk of their time onboarding. And so if you're going to have an onboarding team, one of their main missions should be to free up and um, like unobstruct the CSMs so they can truly be focused on um, on like like strategy, being a strategic advisor, um, helping them with continued issues with adoption, you know, adding new products, expansion, whatever that is, instead of like fixing issues or um, whatever it may be, right? And so, from our perspective, if we can get this the the platform set up properly then the CSMs spend way less time on problems, right? That's yeah. the number one. And if we can get everybody adopting, then we are delivering a customer who's in really good shape, right? And it's not as if, you know, when you're working with numbers, you're never going to hit 100%. So that doesn't mean 100% of our customers that we deliver to CSMs are fantastic, set up exactly right. Everybody's trained and they're all using it, but like a pretty high percentage are. Yeah. And so they're getting clean slates handed to them that are customers that are in good shape, that are using the product, that like it, that are still in that kind of happy phase. And that that's what like unencumbers our CSMs and it really sets them up for success. Yeah. Yeah. That's actually probably the most common conversation that I have with my clients is like when to specialize your customer success team. And I always say, you know, as soon as possible, basically cut out onboarding and have it be its own thing. Because, you know, when, as soon as you start to specialize, they also, they get better at the process, right? And you just become more productive and then you can start to automate. And um, in addition to just setting them up for success, which if you onboard them improperly, then it's going to create a lot more headache later. So, yeah. And, and I think that there's other costs to it in addition to what you said. So there's this concept of like inertia where if you wait too long, then your culture of CSMs will kind of be solidified around that type mm -hmm. of active work where it's like, that's what we do. That's what we've always done. We're solving yeah. issues. We're trying to, to onboard and implement and trying to fix issues that, you know, all that stuff. And it's really hard to get them out of it. Even because for a long time as a CS leader, I believe that if we just took things off of CSM's plates, that 
they would then magically become proactive because now we remove the barriers. And I would I know from experience that that is not true, that there is a cultural inertia that will keep you in a reactive state. And there's a lot more to be done besides just removing other things from off their plate. And I fought that battle a few times um, in, in, one, in one role that I was at where it was a major initiative on the whole CS org to, um, to transition from a reactive posture to a proactive posture. And of course, that was the first thing we wanted to do is let's take off all the things off our plate that we're doing that are keeping us from being pre proactive. And we, we succeeded in clearing everyone's plates, but we failed in transitioning to being proactive. And that was a shocker for us. And there was a lot of other things that we had to do. And it was because of that cultural inertia that, mm -hmm. that keeps you doing what you've been doing. And so we had to do a lot more than, than just clear people's plates. Uh, we had to change our culture. We had to change our mindset. We had to um, kind of inspire everybody. Like, what is the most important thing you should be doing? Like one of the, one of the phrases we used a lot was like, you are a human being. What should human beings ideally be doing versus what should machines or you know mm. maybe cheaper sources of labor be doing? And so we kind of had to position it as holding them up as you are a human being, you should be doing higher level things that only you can do. And that, and so we had to kind of get everyone bought in to the vision. And then that still wasn't enough, by the way, Sarah. I mean, I'm telling you, we had two failed pivots from reactive to proactive. Um, beyond that, we had to also empower them with like interesting things to talk about. They're like, okay, I'm ready and I want to be, and I don't have anything else, but now I don't know, I really don't know what to talk about. Because, and it's still cultural inertia, I guess, yeah. because they say, I'm just so used to answering their questions and they, I'm so used to solving their problems that they're bringing to me and I don't yeah. do that anymore. So now what do I talk about? And so that that's a whole other ball of wax that I won't get into, but we had to spend a lot of time doing that. Yeah, I mean, well, we could talk about this one topic for the whole call, but um, it's so fascinating. I haven't... I haven't heard, I mean, obviously in customer success, you talk about moving from reactive to proactive, but I've never heard somebody describe it in terms of like, you are a human. And so like use your human brain, which I think is fascinating, especially right now. But I'm, I'm guessing that was, you probably had that conversation before this whole AI craze. Yes. The, this pivot and those, those, um, angles that I was using to really um, reposition the team were before chat GPT. Right. But, and so I, I, I don't know, even as I was describing it to you, because I was recalling an old story, I was thinking, what about chat GPT now? And it, it, it does change the game a little bit. It hasn't really changed us yet, but it certainly will. Right. Yeah. And one of the reasons there's a delayed effect is because of technology adoption, where customers in a lot of industries they're not going to trust an AI agent yet. As far as like being a strategic right. advisor, as far as those high level things, I don't think that that's always going to be the case. I'm not convinced that that's always going to be the case, but some of these people that I work with, I mean, some of these types of customers, it's going to be a while for that generation to change that. I don't know. Yeah. TBD. Yeah. It's, it's totally this, this other angle. Like, I mean, it, we take it for granted that like there's computer things and there's human being things. And I even totally relied on that as like a bedrock, like the new direction I was trying to sell was built on top of that idea. And now mm -hmm. the, there's like a potential challenge to that fundamental idea. Yeah. Um, okay. So back to you and your journey. Um, I, you started out as an engineer. Yeah, it's even more complicated than that. I, I'm always hesitant to talk about, I, I, don't, I don't remember if I mentioned this with you, but with most people, I don't talk about my full journey because it's there's a lot of different things and it, there's it's a very high risk of just like, what are you doing all these things? Yeah. But like in college, <laughs> I did sales for five years. I did door-to-door -door yeah. sales for five years. Door-to-door -door sales. I did that once. It sucked. Yeah, it's tough. What did you sell and who'd you sell for? Um, I I was at Heartland. I don't have it on my LinkedIn profile because um, I was there for, it was like during my 2017, like trying to figure out what I was doing, but um, the, uh, Heartland payment systems. So I was selling payment processing to businesses. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I have some social anxiety and I'm agoraphobic. So it just, it's interesting that I tried that, but anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so what yeah. were you saying? 
Well, I, I was selling pest control to consumers. Okay. Uh, yeah, because like I, people are like, oh, that's so awesome you did that. But it's like, yeah, my parents didn't pay for anything with college or anything, rent, car, yeah. living expenses, tuition. So to me, it was just like a necessity, like a $15 an hour job all year wasn't going to cut it. So I had to go find something else. But I don't really, I don't really talk about that very much. Although I love sales and I, I've always loved it. And even in other roles, I'm, I always find ways to insert myself into the sales process. But um, yeah, but where I really started my real career was um, accounting as a CPA working for Deloitte and Touche. And that was in the Bay Area, right in the middle of Silicon Valley. All my client, most of my clients are tech clients, right? And I'm doing their accounting and I'm looking at all these engineers and I just wanted, I wanted to be them, right? I, I love the technical stuff. I love really hard problems that not everybody can solve. To me, that was just such an interesting challenge. And I was not getting paid a lot and working way more hours than them. And, you know, they're making many times the money that I was. And so, and I actually wasn't unhappy at my, at my job. It was a very neutral, like, oh, this is fine. Right. Mm. Um, but I was working a lot of hours. And um, like, I remember there were some, some nights where we were working so late, like three, four in the morning that we couldn't, you know, they wouldn't let us drive home. So they're getting us taxis home and to go home to sleep at night and then to come back. We just left our cars there for like three or four days. You're working until four in the morning as an accountant? Yeah, during our busy season and during the peak, right before you have some deadlines that are just non-negotiable deadlines, yeah. we will die before we miss this deadline. Yeah. And I remember like one time I, I was home, I, like it was the middle of the night, I got up to go to the bathroom and I'm leaving the bathroom and my wife is coming in and that was our catch up time. I was like, oh, hey, how's it going? It's like the middle of the night. How has your day been? And we just like caught up right there because Aww. I left for work before she got up and I came back long after she was in bed for a long time. Right. And so that wasn't that wasn't an easy experience, but I wouldn't trade that for anything um, because there's so much accelerated growth, like professional development that you get from being in such a high, you know, high heat type of situation where the stakes are really high. There's no room for failure and you're all as a team just going to put everything you have in, into it. And so that was really tough, but like, I still wanted to be an engineer. And so I was taking online courses. I was programming all of my work at Deloitte, like, because we work in spreadsheets and hmm. the partners would be like, don't automate the work, just, just do your regular job. And that's when I knew that I needed to, I needed to find something else. And so I ended up taking a job with Goldman Sachs. Um, they have like two or 3000 accountants. And so when you have that many accountants, you need a team just to like um, help the accountants with their own systems and automate their work and um, help them with their processes. So we were like basically an accounting operations team, just a small little team. Um, Goldman does it interesting where when they when they bring somebody in, they um, so you, they know that you don't know which department you want to work. And everyone just is clear on that. So you sit in a room and different teams come in and interview you. Which oh, is really cool. awesome because I didn't yeah. know which team they would bring me in to be a regular accountant, actually. And one of the teams that came in was this accounting operations team. And they're a bunch of engineers building their own stuff. And, and you're like, like, that's that's it. That's that's what I want to do. Exactly. So, it, so wait, so you already knew did they already give you an offer or you were coming in for the interview and then these different teams come in? No, no. They hadn't given me an offer yet. They do a phone screening just to make sure you have like all of the general skills and that you'd yeah. be qualified in general, but it's like, okay, well, which team come in? And I think I was interviewed by like seven or eight teams that day. Are they good with internal mobility after you join as well? I mean, do they keep that same mindset? Yeah. I'd say that, I'd say that they, I mean, they want you in seat for a little bit because they put a lot of training into you. They put, they invest a lot. Um, but besides that, they, they were, I saw a lot of people moving around. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. Yep. So yeah, this team was one of them. The, everyone else was accountants, regular accounting team. And this team came in. Yeah, exactly. I was like, I want this team, but they were like, do you have the skills? Right. They were far more skilled than me. So I really had to sell them. Um, I told them I'll work extra. I'll work nights and weekends. I will catch up. I will do whatever needs to, you know, just trust me. And so I was kind of able to persuade them to take a chance on me, even though I wasn't, I, I would say I wasn't qualified nearly as qualified as any of them. And that was, that was great. I was there for four years and it was one of the best jobs I've ever had as an individual contributor. And so that was a blast, learned a ton of new skills, 
Um, it was interesting because I was not the most technical guy on the team. I never climbed up to become the most, the smartest engineer on that team uh, at any point. But what was interesting is I was consistently one of the highest uh, performing. And I think, I think that's some of the career advice I give some people is that if you're really good with soft skills and people skills, and you can talk and you can think and you can present, sometimes it's a really good idea to go into a technical field because you, yeah. will, be, you will likely be the only person on that team that can do those things. Right. And you will absolutely set yourself apart. And that's what I did. I was very medium, middle of the road in my technical skills, but I don't think anybody really knew that except for my manager, right? <laughs> they all thought I was yeah. the best and I was not. Well, I mean, and, and it is really hard to find somebody who has the customer facing plus the engineering. And that's why I think your background is so interesting. But when I'm working with customer success orgs that are typically it's, it's ones that are more SMB or B2C and they need somebody with those technical chops, most people in customer success don't have that. So it's kind of one or the other. And finding somebody who, you know, knows SQL and can code in Python and, um, you know, but also like has a customer facing piece like that's, yeah, that's totally unique. So definitely a good piece of advice. If people are also interested in coding, which um, I actually taught myself to code when I was younger as well, but I didn't really take it very far. Nice. Have you used it since then? I mean, I don't think most people do. So I'd, I'd be surprised if you did, but. Um. I, I taught myself to code when I was um, just, I mean, it was just like mainly HTML and CSS. My very first job, I was a web marketing specialist at this high tech company. And I like, and I was building the website. And so I was like, I would always go up and like sit with the engineers and be like, Hey, can you help me with this? And like actually getting into the code. I don't think I really use it, but it helps me at random times understand things and like, and I will go into source code on websites and stuff, but, um, and I've done a lot of different things in sales and recruiting and marketing. And, um, that has helped me immeasurably as an entrepreneur, because I like was really into graphic design at one point and was taking graphic design courses. And so like, I use Adobe suite every single day and I can create graphics and build websites and, you know, do that kind of thing. So I think, um, Sometimes it's easy when you're thinking of making a career transition to think like, oh, I'm starting over. And in a lot of ways, maybe you are, but it all, it all comes together. And I think that's part of following what it is that you're interested in is like, it doesn't always connect right away. It could be 10 years later that you realize, oh, I'm really glad that I don't have to pay somebody to create my logo. Yeah. You know? Totally. So. Yeah, I'm with you there. I, like, I don't view it. It's not always a pivot. A lot of times it's adding another arrow to your quiver. Mm. Like I use my accounting skills surprisingly often in customer success. Huh? Really? Yeah. There's a lot of numbers that you report on. And some of the leading metrics that um, customer success people and, and more care about, like NRR, GRR, um, those aren't those numbers are not always easy to calculate. And, and so not only do you have to do a lot of times, you have to do them outside of systems and, and bust mm -hmm. open Excel, which of course, like super good at, but like beyond that, I think where the uniquely accountant comes in is that um, you have to be able, you, you have this instinct that you need to make sure your numbers are absolutely solid. And you just automatically prove that your numbers are solid. You know, at the top of your spreadsheet, there's all these tie outs where it's like this ties to the Salesforce report. This ties to the other dashboard that I know you look at and here are the differences, but they're explained by this. And this is solid. Like you can't argue against this, right? These numbers have been picked over. So yeah, I totally agree with you. Like whatever, like, I think there's, you can always find a way to, to gather your other skills and really make you unique mm -hmm. um, in your future endeavors with the things you've done in the past. And that also makes you invaluable to the organization because how are they going to find somebody that knows how to do all these things? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, a lot of times if you stay in one lane, you know, you might, you're maybe more easily replaced by somebody else who knows that one thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that is, that is one of my playbooks um, when I'm talking to, to people who are younger in their career. I mean, I kind of alluded to it already when I said that it's like, oh, you, you want to be 
you want to be with people like you are good at, at those soft skills. It's like, have you considered a technical career? And, and with one of my jobs, I hired a lot of very technical people. Uh, I think 28 of them. And, and so, and I was going after the people who are really technical that didn't know they were technical. And so mm. kind of learn to like, learn to snuff out the people who would actually really love that stuff and didn't necessarily know it all the way, but I knew that they would be super happy with it. And if they were really good with people, then I was usually able to persuade them to be like, okay, I know you want to, pe I know you're looking at sales or, or this, but let's think about this customer facing technical role. Let me paint this picture for you and what it can do for your future. So, I mean, how do you sniff that out? Oh yeah. Okay. So that was really interesting. And selfishly, one of the reasons we did that is because we did not have a big budget and somebody who is a tenured, experienced, super technical person is going to be super expensive. Yeah. But somebody who you can, who has that drive and that passion and you can ignite that they're just getting in and yes, they will eventually command very high pay but not at the beginning when they're still learning the ropes, just like I, just like it happened to me at Goldman Sachs. And so yeah. it, we really just were looking for that raw talent. Uh, so that's the why, but as far as the how, um, we'd ask them questions um, about spreadsheets. We were looking for hints that like, um, like one of our questions was like, so um, do you keep any spreadsheets in your life um, outside of work? Oh, and if they started to geek out on their budgeting spreadsheet, <laughs> we got one because most people don't do that. Right. And so that was like, that's one example of, of an indication. Another example, and this is a little bit harder to find because it's like, which tool, but if they had some tool that was really hard to use and nobody else in the org knew how to use that tool, but they kind of put it on them to like figure out all the ins and outs sure. and how does this work? And they kind of loved being that central point of contact that just knew how the old magic was written, that's another indication. And then um, those people also do really well on logic tests. And so we have some logic tests that we gave. And then we target people where we know there's gonna be a lot of those. Um, so in, in one program, we targeted um, actually women who had been out of the workforce for a while and had, had studied like uh, finance or accounting. And there's actually quite a few, it's kind of a weird niche, but there are quite a few um, who take time off from their careers yeah. to have children. And eventually they want to come back. Um, I went to BYU where there's, um, there's a lot, you know, it's a very family oriented culture because um, it's a church school. And so they, um, a lot of those women take time off and then they, they're not exactly sure what to go back to, but they, since they studied accounting and finance, I know many of them have that, have that, you know, that drive, that itch to be really good at something technical. And so, um, so we'd also target basically populations that we knew had that. And there were other reasons um, we targeted them as well that didn't have to do with that. But it was, yeah, it's really interesting to try to find those people and then work with them to help them realize like you can make money off of this and love what you do. Yeah. Well, and most people don't realize that like they think kind of like you said, like I, I have to hate work. You yeah. don't have to. The hard thing is figuring out what is that thing that you can both make money at and want to do on a day-to-day -day basis. And you're never going to love everything that you do, you know, but to have that, like, you know, talk about like, like at least 30% of your time, you should be kind of getting into that state of flow where like time just flies by. Mm -hmm. And I think for me, at least that's what I always listen to when I try to figure out what to move towards. But um, this is a good segue into, I wanted to talk about leadership because I know that that's something that you're really passionate about. And um, I've never managed anybody and frankly don't want to, um, but partly because everybody is so different. And that's, that's, that's like that, that the concept of like, just completely taking myself out of the equation. And I don't even know if this is true. So feel free to correct me, but, um, but really giving that person what they need from a developmental perspective, figuring out what that is and then and then helping, I don't know, it just, how do you do that? Well, maybe maybe one thing that would be closest that you might really relate to is that there's a bit of a matching exercise because unfortunately, like you want to also keep these people in the company and I, maybe even hopefully on your team, right? 
And so, so you have to, there's, it's matching because on one side you have them and what do they like to do? What are they good at? What do they not even know that they love yet? Right. But you have another side of what's available and like, okay, in the whole job market, anything is available. Right. But I do have a responsibility to my employer to keep top talent and to find places in the company for them where they will thrive. And so that's where it's a matching exercise. And that's where I'll bet you, I'll bet you do, I'll bet you can relate to that, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so how do you, and this kind of relates to the other question, but like, how do you, how do you help people uncover mm. things that they didn't know that they love? Yeah, yeah. We, we have conversations and they're very undirected, unscripted. Who knows where this conversation goes, but um, it's kind of a mode I go into if I know that we're going to do this. And it, I don't do this with everybody automatically, but I do it when, um, when, my, when my reports tell me, I don't, I don't know exactly what I want to do next. I've been doing this role and I don't know. And they kind of feel guilty about it. Um, what they don't realize is they're actually ahead of most people by even just asking those questions openly to people who can actually maybe open some doors right yeah but, so so i'm willing to have that conversation with anybody i i need my personal philosophy i need them to come to me because i want them to want it right and so when when i hear that i think okay i know what we're doing here we're going to have that conversation and when i say that conversation it's a conversation where we talk about i ask them what are the things about all of the jobs you've ever had that you love the very most. Mm -hmm. I always ask my candidates that too. Yeah. It's a great question. Yeah. yeah. I love that. And then another kind of um, flavor of that question is um, like, especially if, because if I can find something that's close to what they're doing, then that's easiest for all of us. And they can, they can keep the relationships and the reputation they have. So I try to say, is there something nearby? Right. And if I'm looking for something nearby, I'll ask something like, um, when you come into work, like what is it that makes you excited on Sunday night to come to work? Is there anything in your current job where if you remember on Sunday that you have to do that first thing in the morning that you're happy? Yep. That you're excited to go do that. And that's a little bit closer to home. Yeah. Because it's like, okay, in the last few weeks, like in the last few Sundays, have I, have I even had a time where I was excited to go to work? Or maybe it's after lunch or whatever it is, right? And 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 why? What is it that you're excited to go do? What is that thing? And then we 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 explore what that thing is. And then we also explore the opposite. What are the things that you dr that you dread? Because we have you have to go into that. I mean, I think that's so key because, and it is a mixture of both. But it's not like like every role at every company with every different manager at different times is different. You know, so like. I could, I make, so I, <laughs> my first job, I was this web marketing specialist and I was at this high-speed data transfer company. And it was all about like bandwidth optimization and like, like just how does like, how do gaming companies like transfer huge files? And I'm like, I'm not interested in that technology at all. And I was writing like case studies about it. And so that was kind of like, ugh, you know, but had I been a marketing person at a like go-to-market productivity software company, which I now realize like those are my favorite clients because I love that type of technology. Like I might've accidentally, or I might've not accidentally, but I might've stayed in marketing, which I actually am glad I didn't. But, um, but yeah, it's not, it's not this role. It's, it's the little things. It's like, I'm, I'm really good at sourcing. And, but I also like all, all my husband will be like, how are you how are you shopping like this? Like I'll be shopping and just like scrolling, 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 scrolling. And like, it's this weird kind of, I almost tune out, but I can like read things really quickly. And I get, it's like this, but it's this weird thing that like he would hate to do. But yeah. for some reason I get into this weird flow of just, and it's like, it doesn't really have all that much to do with recruiting. It's like, it's a skill of mine. Mm -hmm. Um, and there are things going on in the back of my brain, um, as I'm sourcing, but anyway, that's a tangent. I don't think it is a tangent because that's another question. So I said, there's another, that's an, a third question I ask is yeah. what, what brings you into the flow, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think most people know what the flow is, right? 
is what what is it what are the types of activities that you find yourself in the flow the most often because that's a really big tell right yeah there. yeah yeah i call those i call the this isn't sourcing but i call those my creative comas when i'm like starting a new business and like i'm like God, I have to pee so bad, but like, I can't go. Cause I have to do this. Like I'm on this thing. I like, I, I can't, I can't do it. So I like, it's really uncomfortable actually, but. Oh yeah. Yeah. I I've experienced the same thing. In fact, when I, when I go, when I use the restroom, I think, okay, I'm going to be away from the screen. What is something I can be doing on this task that not on the screen? Oh, I can work through this problem in my head mm-hmm. and then I'm, I don't have to break the flow. Right. So I, I, right. I totally hear you on that. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, what about when somebody's underperforming? Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, separately from what is the best fit job from them. So like just all on its own, like when someone's underperforming. Yeah, just, just as a leader. Yeah. I think, I think the very best analogy, and this is, I don't think this is going to be groundbreaking, but my, the, the close, the, the best word I can use to describe it is a coach. I want, and, and so what are the best, what are, what are the attributes of the best coaches? The best coaches uh, truly love the people that they're that they're um, in charge of, and it's a it's a little bit more of a tough love, where you have to be um, unyielding about what your expectations are, and it's for their own benefit. Because if you're anything less than that, you are doing them a disservice. And that phrase, I mean, you can ask my team how many times. I use that phrase when I'm giving delivering hard information. I I preamble it with saying, I would be like, what was one of the recent ones I did? Um, um, something about like how sometimes I was telling them about how sometimes the feedback that you get is not all the way true. And you can be kind of unfairly accused of maybe underperformance that you that isn't actually true, right? And what I was trying to tell them is that like this happens and it would be. I would be doing you a disservice if I failed to tell you that this is just something that happens on a semi-regular basis from time to time, and you need to learn how to work through it and how to how to confront it and 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 head those challenges. Now, if someone is legitimately, let's pretend we're not in that situation. Someone's legitimately underperforming. It's that same type of vibe. Um, they will almost always reply saying, "Well, the expectations weren't clear," mm. and. The interesting thing about that is not only do they almost always say that, but they're almost always right about that, especially in startups, which is where I came from, because there just aren't clear expectations in startups. That's part of the name of the game, right? right, right. Um, but truth be told, the expectations weren't very clear, always clear at Goldman Sachs or Deloitte and Touche either, where there's a yeah. huge established, um, very like professional organizations, right? So it's not even just a startup thing, but especially in a startup, right? And so they say that, and they're actually dead on about that, yeah. right? I, I remember there was this, like, from, like, when I first started talking to, like, maybe six or seven, I don't know why I remember this, but, like, anytime I would get in trouble, like, and I wouldn't say this if it wasn't true, but a lot of the time, all I had to say was, but I didn't know. Yeah. And my mom would be like, oh, okay, honey. And I wouldn't be in trouble anymore. And that was like my line. And then there, and then there got to a point where like, I really couldn't say that very much anymore. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it's like, shame on you for not telling me. Like, I didn't know yeah. I couldn't go on the wall. My eight-year-old says that all the time. <laughs> but, but then, but then you, you tell him and then, or her and then. Yeah. yeah. What I tell him is. Like there's, you have to like, each situation is different. Sometimes, sometimes they should have just known. And I'm not afraid to say that. So what what I might say to him is that we might say, Evan, you are the oldest child. We can't always tell you every single thing of what not, what to do or what not to do. But you should have known that uh, doing that to the playhouse would break it. And you know, not to break things in general, right? So something like that, like, okay, maybe you don't know that task, but let's, but you are a smart person and Mm -hmm. we actually have this expectation of you. And that's, that's not like I'm parenting the people, but like, I, I, it's kind of the same angle. Yeah. They hit me with that. Now, sometimes it's, it really isn't clear, even from a common sense perspective. And in that case, we've got some work to do. Yeah. So it does depend. Um, you, you might've seen this, but, um, 
week or two ago, the Microsoft's ex-VP of HR, Chris Williams, you see this? He wrote an article um, in Business Insider that said that if you get put on a PIP, performance improvement plan, that you should leave immediately because surviving it is like a sign on your back. What would you either say to him if he were here or to someone reading that? I mean, I think that the unfortunate reality is that is true in many circumstances. I do everything I can to make it not true with the teams that I lead. And I think that I do a good job. I work hard and deliberate at that because if I'm a coach, like I really do put on the coach hat. And, you know, during the period when someone's on a PIP, they are on my mind more than anybody else on the team for better, or for worse, you know, and there's a lot of people that say, actually, that's not good. You should actually just focus on the high performers rather than focus on the low performers because they're usually more starved. And maybe there's some truth to that. Um, but the bottom line is I just make sure that they get rewarded with money and, and promotions and things that matter and recognition. Right. But anyway, but what, with, with these people that are underperforming, they're on my mind the most. I find myself having the strongest feelings for their benefit and I'm very concerned for their welfare. And so I'm doing everything that I can to turn that around and to, to get us to a situation where they're not just regular performing, but they're overperforming. And I can tell you that at Goldman Sachs, this, this is a reality. And this is part of the culture, at least in the division that I am in, because Goldman Sachs is a big place with different cultures. In the division where I was in, there was a culture where being a comeback kid was a major benefit. Mm -hmm. And that made you a compelling case for a promotion. And I yeah. learned that at Goldman Sachs is that this is actually a really good narrative to get somebody a promotion. But the main caveat is you have to actually improve. Like the performance, the underlying performance has to be real and everybody has to know it. Hmm. Yeah, because we've talked about this and you've said that, you know, not only have you not lost many people that you put on PIP, but a lot of them have become top performers and then end up getting promoted. Mm -hmm. But it yeah. sounds like there, you really have to, and, and it starts with also telling that story and pumping them up and getting them excited yes. and setting those expectations. Yes, I tell them that because they need, they need to know that this, this can turn around. I mean, people are always so much more motivated by hope than by fear. And I actually don't believe that fear has no place. I think that fear has a small place in occasional circumstances when you need to wake up and you need to change course, right? That's what fear is for. Um, but if, you, if you're changing course already and you're starting to be in a better place, we need to turn that fear down and we need to start bringing hope in big time, right? And that, mm -hmm. that period where there's fear should be very short. It's just the, just what you need to do to, to turn the steering wheel and make major changes. And then once you're on a better trajectory, now we need hope. And that's, that's really what I focus on. And I tell that story um, and I tell them and I back it up by telling them like, there's part of this that I need to do. And there's like to actually realize this vision of this turnaround and higher performance than before. There's a lot of things that need to happen. And the, so let's go through them, right? One yeah. of them is like, starts with me, I need to be really clear about what success looks like, where it's like, okay, these are the five key bullet points. And I do my homework with those. So if there are other people in other departments, which is frequently the case, that are complaining about this person, I go to them and say, I understand that you're concerned about so-and-so. Let me tell you the, the things that I've observed, and I want you to see if you agree. A lot of times they're like really angry and they want me to fire this person. <laughs> so they've got strong feelings, right? And I show them my list and I make my list sharp. I make it so that the person reading this list is like, yeah, yeah. Like <laughs> it's really speaking to these external stakeholders. Like, yeah, you got it. Like I don't understate the magnitude of the problem even a little bit because once they, cause I love, and they'll do this. They'll be like, that's it. You nailed it. Oh, maybe they'll add another thing, but they're on board. They're like, yeah. you stated what was bothering me so much. And I appreciate that. And, and then that's exactly what I take to the person. I say, this is the feedback. This is not just coming from me, right? And that's, that's probably where the fear spikes right there. But yeah. we're, not, we're not holding back here in this phase. 
But then also once they meet those expectations, then that other person, since you've gotten buy-in mm-hmm. and you've That's already identified what those specific things are that needed to change, then yeah, I mean. Because yeah. a lot of times those external stakeholders, if you don't actively manage the situation, they will harbor a permanent grudge against that person. And so what what they don't realize, I never told anybody this, but but like what they what they don't realize is that when they got buy-in and usually written buy-in on that, they mm-hmm. committed themselves to be like, well, if they fix those things, then they're a good performer. Yes. And so, so, so my job is to gather that feedback and to make the path forward clear. Their job, the, the underperforming person's job is to hit those bullet points out of the park. And we're going to be, and so w- the way it looks like for me is usually there's the problems and then there's like sub bullet points of like super tangible actions that they can take to not just satisfy that concern but exceed the concern so it's really high performance there i've defined what high performance looks like and it's their job to actually do that and they they haven't always done that but they usually do and then what we do then okay so now it's back to my job is to record and capture evidence of all those things happening and that takes a lot of time and energy but um what you can do is at, at the end of the process let's say that this person has done all those things and they've turned turned the ship around is um, you kind of put the onus on them. I've asked them, hey, other leader, since we talked three months ago, have you seen any evidence of any kind of tardiness or or late or or missing meetings or anything like that of any degree whatsoever? And I'll say that because then they know that I'm still being rigorous and they have to answer no, assuming they fixed it. Even if they have that grudge, well, no, I, ha- I haven't seen any of that. Yeah. Okay, okay great. <laughs> and then I say, okay, because let me show you what I've observed. And then I show them the evidence. I say, I've seen this, I've seen this, I've seen this. These are some screenshots. These are some feedbacks from your people. I almost always get their um, direct reports to give feedback. So I said, this person reports to you. This is what she said about the person. It's slamming good feedback, right? So it's coming from their own department. I have this, I have like a repository of this. And so it becomes this like closed case, like, okay, we're done here. And then I'll usually just state it directly and say something along the lines of like, hey, I think that we all have times in our past where we struggled. It's clear that this person legitimately was not living up to expectations, but they've turned that around. And I think it's all important for all of us because you would want the same. And I would do this for you that we move on from this and that we hold them in high esteem from here on out. So I'll kind of state it directly. And then usually if you do that, then that limits the fallout from these external stakeholders and it opens the door for, let's say three months later is promotion season. And I put this person up for a promotion. They, they're not gonna, they're not gonna bring up that old stuff. Wow. I love it. Yeah. So, so there's a little bit of politicking involved. There's a lot of, of work, but it's worth it because um, things are better than they were before, not just with their performance, but with your relationship with them. And the team knows that we have each other's back and yeah. that we're not just looking for excuses to fire people, but that we're all here to improve. And we go through those phases and the turnaround needs to be swift and real. But once it happens, then you're back on the team and you're all the way back. And I think that just builds trust and kind of helps people to relax and be their yeah. best selves. Yeah. I love it. We're at time already, but wanted to, I mean, there are a million other things I wanted to ask you, but um, what's next? What's next for Kendall? Um, yeah. So I'm, I lead customer onboarding departments, right? Yeah. Um, and, and there's a number of things that I'd love to do. Uh, in my future, I'd love to lead the entire success f- function. Um, another idea is I'd love to lead an operations team um, that like helps that that covers all the instrumentation needs for CS and even sales because I'm a systems guy. I have a strong technical background. And I'm always working with sales and working on systems for the whole CS. So that's really interesting to me. And then there's some there's some other side hustles that not, not super ready to talk about, but 
I have a, a small team working on it. And really? It, uh, yeah. Oh. Yeah. Let me it's, know when you need to hire a team. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I for sure will. <laughs> yeah, it's not, it's not. Okay. I think a lot of tech people are disillusioned with a hope of growing a billion dollar company. Like almost right. everybody that I talk to doesn't want that. They're like, just find me like a dump truck business that, that carries pallets or something like that, right? That just mints money, right? Just yeah. something s- simple like that. And it's it's not exactly like that, but it is it is not like- um, It's not gonna be a VC-backed startup. It's not gonna be a VC-backed startup. It's, it's something more that can just um, do all the things that I love doing and I'm good at and, and make a ton of money. So- I mean, what else could you want, right? Exactly, exactly. Okay, cool. Well, Kendall, I can't thank you enough. Sarah, thank you. This has been fantastic. I can't believe it's been a, been an hour. I know, I know. Great call, and um, we'll be in touch soon. Okay, thanks a lot, Sarah. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Hey guys, Sarah here again. Thanks so much for listening to Success Unscripted. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating or writing a review, and don't forget to hit that subscribe button so that you don't miss out on future episodes. I will also be posting all recorded videos on YouTube, but be forewarned that this particular episode was recorded on Zoom, so the video quality isn't all that great, but I'm using Riverside now, and all future episodes will have higher quality video. My goal is to bring you stories that educate and inspire you, so if you have any thoughts, feedback, or you have someone in mind who'd be a great future guest, don't hesitate to reach out. My info's in the show notes. I plan to release episodes every other Friday, so assuming you're not sick of me yet, I'll see you in two weeks.